Well, good afternoon. It is uh, nice to see you all. As Nick said earlier, we're starting a new series today. Um, I realised with a start uh, a little while back that we had a four-week gap. I, I'd assumed that when Ian finished his series on the body of Christ that we were going to go into our summer series. And when I went back to the calendar, there were four weeks with uh, no talks. So, um, yeah, very quickly I was thinking, what could we do? Um, and I knew Ian wasn't here, so so here we are with a new series of four. Um, let me just give you a quick overview. If you would like a Bible verse that sums up this new four-week series, um, look with me, if you've got your Bibles open in Romans 5, look with me at Romans chapter 6, verse 4, um, where Paul writes there a little bit about baptism. He says, We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A new life. I've taken our series title from that verse. Um, hopefully, we'll see some slides behind me. Um, there you go, a new life, just as if by magic. Uh, did you know that you could go on the web and um, you could find... Uh, um, websites that will give you like a 20-point plan for how you can disappear and uh, go and live somewhere else and create a new life. That sounds very tempting, that, doesn't it, sometimes? Uh, do, do you want a new life? 20 steps to how you can disappear and go and start a new life. What might some of the reasons for that be? I don't know. Maybe you might feel bored. Maybe my life's not exciting enough and I'd like a new one. I'd like to trade my old life in for a new one. Maybe for some people, there was that story recently, wasn't there, the last few years of that couple who got into debt and they tried to fake the husband's death in a canoeing accident and then they went to live in Panama. Do you remember that story? And they, they just were so overwhelmed with guilt that they ended up giving themselves up, I think. Um, so, but but they, they really wanted to create a new life because their old life was saddled with so much debt that they couldn't continue to live. Maybe regret. Um, maybe uh, some people feel, I, I've made mistakes and I'd like to go where no one knows and start a new life. Maybe fear. Maybe someone might feel so frightened with their current circumstances that they just want to up sticks 20-point plan to get a new life somewhere else. I, I think you would agree with me that the problem with all of these things is that they're all essentially about circumstances, external circumstances. And um, I don't know, maybe we'll say, if I, if I could just change X, Y, or Z, then I would be truly happy. And sometimes, perhaps more often than we care to admit, we change our circumstances in the hope that life will be new. But the real problem is that we ourselves haven't changed. And so we begin a new life somewhere else, but we take ourselves into that new situation and there isn't really a new life after all. I think one of the great things about Christianity is that it is a new life, not in terms of external things, but actually is a completely new 
you. Christianity is not a tired or miserable old laugh. It is not, as we might say, same old, same old, but a radically new and different laugh. A clean laugh. A new start with new power, new hope, new horizons, new resources. Paul says elsewhere in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What a great verse that is. So, I have two aims in this uh, series. If you're a Christian believer, my first aim really is to awaken within you just a renewed sense of excitement and recognition that you've been called by God to live a new life, not the same old one. And notice that I said there, to live it. Now, I don't mean to think about a new life or to dream about what it might be or to contemplate it in a shop window somewhere, but to actually live it. It is so easy to forget the fact that as Christians we were once in darkness but now are in the light. We were at one time guilty but have now been forgiven. We were, in fact, spiritually dead but now have been made alive. There was a time when we were once very far away from God, but now we've been brought near. There was a time when we were once unaware of what Christ had done for us, but now we know something of his power and love. There was a time when we were heading for a lost eternity, separated from God forever, which is awful. But now... Because of Christ, we're on a road that will ultimately lead to glory. It is all new. It is all good. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4 there, it is all because of Jesus who powerfully rose from the dead. He is the original, sparkling, incredible new model. He wasn't bored. He was dead. He wasn't in debt. He was dead. (laughs) He wasn't just on the receiving end of some bad stuff in his circumstances. He was actually stone cold. Dead. He wasn't guilty. He was actually dead. He was dead, but now he's alive. And because he lives, so can you. I, 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 I didn't just make that up either. Jesus... I don't know if you're familiar with this verse. In Revelation, John sees this amazing vision of the risen, powerful, glorious Jesus. And he hears Jesus say these words, Revelation chapter 1, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. My second aim, I said there were two, is more that if you are not yet a Christian, I want to 
by, by God's help, awaken in you a sense of desire. I, I want you to get a sense of how much you need this new life so that you will want it and actually come to Jesus to get it. Jesus said about his true followers, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Imagine that, Jesus himself giving you eternal life that is completely new and completely secure. So, here's what I hope we're going to do with God's help. I want us to think about four different aspects of the Christian life, this new life, using four very simple biblical doing words. Um, It reminds me of doing English at school, like doing words. Is that a verb? Is a doing word? There you go, a verb. So here's four biblical doing words. Um, Standing, walking, fighting, and running. These are all ideas taken from the Bible. And I love the way the Bible uses simple pictures to explain really important truths. Standing is really all about a new identity. This is about status and identity as a person. What gives my life value and worth and enables me to stand up and lift up my head and face life? Walking is really all about a new relationship. Christianity is not about rules, but about a living relationship with God, his Father. What does it mean then to walk with God? And I wonder whether you think about your life in that way. Fighting is really all about new purpose and courage. There are things in life that are worth fighting for. But how do we do that? And what does that look like? And then running, last of all, is all about a new destiny. The idea that life is like a race. (laughs) The race for life was today. Um... Life is like a race to be run with patience and determination to the end. Uh, Little Esther said that she ran the whole way, 41 minutes. Very good, that, isn't it? Um, Yeah, running. How can we run in such a way as to finish our race well? It's about perseverance, destiny. So here is a completely new life, new identity, new relationship, new purpose, and new destiny. And all of those things are wrapped up in, the, in what God gives to us in the gospel through his son Jesus. So I hope that whets your appetite and uh, makes you salivate spiritually uh, as we think about those four things. Let's get into our first one today, standing. When I looked up standing in the dictionary, uh, well, maybe as a noun rather than a verb, Uh, This is what it said in the dictionary. It describes standing as position, status, or reputation. We're hoping to have a little break um, in about a month's time in France, a little holiday. And uh, we're going at the end of July. We got a shock when we looked at our passports. There are seven of us. And four of them run out during July just when there's a backlog in the passport office. It's not ideal. They're in process. I think they're due any time. I think Rob's got his back. 
So actually, Rob could go with Emma and Beth and just have a holiday, the three of them, and uh, we could just stay at home. So that'd be nice for you, for you. So we've been rushing to get these renewal forms done. And you always have, for a child, renewal form, you have to get someone to countersign the photograph. You know the process. And on the form it says you have to find a person with good standing in the community. Good standing. So I went round to Richard Holy's house, because he's a man in good standing in the community. And then he looked at his passport and realised that his had run out last year. So although he's got good standing, he didn't qualify because he didn't have a passport. So that's the idea I'm trying to get hold of here. Standing as in reputation, respect, status, kudos. It is interesting on the passport form that it talks about good standing in the community. This kind of standing, in a sense, has to be approved by other people. It's really other people looking at your life and saying... He's all right, he is. He's got good standing. That's, that's the idea. If I'm trying to be in with a group of friends, let's say, there might be certain things expected that I would have to be or to do to gain the respect and acceptance of that particular group. My standing with that group or my acceptance by that group or my reputation, in other words, depends on me living up to something or other. So this standing, this idea of standing is really an approval word. It's a word of affirmation. It's about my value and status and identity as a person. But the reason we use the word standing is because it also implies confidence, doesn't it? We don't say someone who has good sitting in the community or good lying down in the community. Why do we use the word standing? Because standing is, you stand tall, don't you? There's something confident about that. You're standing up. So the picture here is not that I'm apologising and scraping into the room because I feel unworthy or disliked or insecure. Standing implies confident approval. I'm secure, safe. Loved, approved of. I wonder in life, are you, do you feel that in your life you are standing tall? Or do you feel that you are constantly, and I, I don't mean physically, metaphorically, bent over or curled up because you're unsure whether you fit in or not. How can we stand up with dignity, respect, with a kind of worthiness? It's a good picture to think about, isn't it? But as Christians, we want to think about this in relation to God, don't we? There's a great king in the Old Testament called David. You remember the story of David and Goliath? David was the greatest king in the Old Testament. He wrote a psalm. And in that psalm, he asked the question, who may stand in God's holy place? In other words, David was asking, how can I come near to God and hold my head up high with no shame? How can I have the confidence 
that God approves of me and loves me. So you can see why I put this one first. And actually, whatever your life is or isn't, this has got to be the most important question of all, hasn't it? And I, I think every other question hinges on the answer to this one. How can I stand it up in God's presence? How can I be right with God? How can I hold my head up high when it comes to God? The reason it's the most important question, I think, is that if you can stand up in God's presence, it doesn't matter in the end whatever or whoever knocks you down anywhere else. Because if you can stand there, you are ultimately secure. But the opposite is true as well, isn't it? That you may well be popular and approved in all kinds of other realms, but if you can't stand in God's presence, you are desperately vulnerable. So this is a really important question. So the first great thing about the Christian life, a new life, is that it involves standing tall in a relationship with God. So the passage in the Bible that I want us to turn to this afternoon is Romans chapter 5. Let me just read to you the first two verses again um, so you can get the reference to standing. Did you notice it the first time around? Paul writes, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Notice the reference to standing. There's a lot of words to explain but I just want you, first of all, to get the sense of a change in status. A Christian is someone who has gained access into a new standing in God's grace. If Christianity means anything at all, it means at least this. I can stand up in a new environment. I can breathe different air. My status was once one of being outside, but now... I've gained access into a new place. And in this new place, there aren't degrees of being in. You know, it's not like the okie-cokie. You, you, you kind of a little bit in and then a little bit out. Well, you know, you put your left foot in, you take your left foot out. It, it, you can't have degrees of being in. You can't be a bit in or more in. I'm fully in and completely in and just as much in as any other person who's in. This is a new identity to be standing up tall in the free and full grace of God. Not apologising or scraping in, but standing up and able to lift up my head with confidence and gladness. How do you see your life as a Christian? Is it this? Is it this? This is an amazing vision of the Christian life, isn't it? A new life. Uh, sometimes, sadly, we Christian believers are the worst possible adverts for it, aren't we? Sometimes it seems like our Christianity has sucked the life out of us rather than made us stand up tall. Sometimes maybe it's little wonder that others are not drawn in when we seem so hesitant and fearful 
This new life isn't a cowardly, fearful life, but a confident and strong life. Let me read some verses from elsewhere in the Bible. Paul Paul wrote these words to his protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Powerful words. Again, the resurrection. The spirit God has given us is not a timid thing, but it's a powerful and confident thing. So, three things that Paul hints at here about this standing. Uh, first of all, so we're in, we're in um, Romans. That's where we are, Romans, chapter 5. And we're just looking at the first two verses. I wish we had time to look at more. But three, three simple things about standing. First of all, standing requires an introduction. We all rely on things to give us standing um, within our friendship groups, within society. Um, when, you, when you go on those passport forms, that actually gives you a list of jobs. These people with these jobs have got good standing in the community. It's all like you know, bank managers and vicars and uh, you know, pe- people who are considered to be, you know, have a good standing. There are things we rely on to give us standing. It might be something or someone. Maybe some of us just look inside of ourselves and say, yep, I can stand because of this or that inside me. But these verses here are very clear. We've gained access into this new state through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul gives Jesus his full title. The Lord Jesus Christ. This this is a grand thing. He, he, He gives Jesus his kind of full dignity and title. We have been introduced by Jesus. So, imagine you lived in an old city long ago and you were very poor. And in this city, there's a great castle And you can look in through the gaps in the walls and you can see the lights and the plentiful food, the happiness on people's faces and you're outside in the street like the proverbial poor little urchin. No shoes, raggedy clothes, dirty face, hungry belly. Now imagine you go up to the castle gate and you knock on the door Please, Mr. Man on the door, please let me in. And the man looks at you with a look on his face that just says, why? But then imagine that the son of the king comes out of the castle, into the street, right to where you are, and he takes you by the hand and he leads you 
back into the castle. This time, you wouldn't even need to stop at security. You might give a little wink to the guy who wouldn't let you in the first time. I mean, no. And the king's son, the prince, he brings you right in. Your rags and poverty do not matter if the prince brings you in. And what does he do? He introduces you to his father, the king. He brings you right inside to the very heart of the castle and he makes an introduction. And the reason that you can stand is because you've been brought in by none other than the king's son. Can you see what difference that makes? Who can send you out if he's brought you in? You can stand up tall because you've gained access into the palace by the introduction of the king's son. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It is Jesus who makes the introduction. He is the one by whom we gain access into this new status. There are at least a couple of brilliant things about this. One is that you can enjoy this fully, but there is absolutely no pride in it. Because you're not there on merit. There's nothing for us to boast about. We're there by the introduction of someone else whose merit is enough for everyone. So you can enjoy it fully without looking down on other people. No pride. Secondly, here's a thing. Being sorry or sad or punishing yourself with some kind of shame doesn't get you in. The way in is to be introduced by Jesus just as you are. So often, as Christian believers, we feel that the way to God is somehow to be sad, maybe even to punish ourselves by reminding ourselves about mistakes. Can you see sometimes that what you're really trying to do when you do that is you're trying to get in by feeling sorry and ashamed? But the way in isn't through being sorry and ashamed. The way in is to be introduced by Jesus. He alone can make things right. So we need to stop trying to self-help and let him make that introduction. Something very significant happened when Jesus died on the cross. Uh, You'll know that in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a massive thick curtain hanging there. And behind the curtain was a place called the most holy place, the holy of holies. And only the priest could go behind that curtain. You couldn't go behind that curtain if you were were the riffraff. Only the priest. And he was only allowed to go behind the curtain on one very special day in the year. Must have been terrifying. God was teaching his people something about access. God is clean and we're not. God is on the inside and we are outside. 
is a barrier. But as Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us that this massive curtain was miraculously torn in two from the top to the bottom. So that proves that a mouse didn't eat it. You know, it wasn't like from the bottom to the top. From the top to the bottom. It was like God was miraculously saying, you can all come in now. Access. The curtain has been ripped and you can come in. Jesus has made it possible for you and I to come in, not on one day of the year, but actually to live in God's presence. This is your new standing. You have access. You're not outside in the cold, but brought in to the very heart of God. So that's the first thing that Paul says here. Standing requires an introduction. Secondly, standing leads to true peace. This is the Christian gospel in a nutshell right here. Um, the real problem we have is not our circumstances. It's not other people. The real problem that we have, biblically, ultimately, is that in our natural condition, we are not at peace with God. Because of our sin, the Bible says that we are enemies of God. It actually says that in this chapter, doesn't it? Verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, because of our sin, in our natural condition, we are not at peace with God. It's like God is angry with us and we are angry with him. Paul says here that now we've been justified and we have peace with God. Justification is a very important Bible word and it's also a word about approval. When you justify something, I, you know, you can watch Question Time you know, on TV and politicians and, and someone will say something and then one of the other politicians will say, how could you possibly justify that? You know, you, you're trying to say that something that is bad is good. How can you justify that? How can you approve of that? But this Bible word is really important because when it comes to God looking at you and me and weighing our lives, making value judgments on humans, he will always have to come to the conclusion that we've fallen short. The first four chapters of Romans are all about this. Paul says in chapter 3, we're all sinners and guilty and not right with God. This is true for religious people and non-religious people. I remember when I was a child, being in the car with my dad, maybe about seven or eight years old, I remember saying to my dad, asking him if the good things I did would outweigh the bad things I'd done to tip things in my favour. You know, even at that age, children have a very strong sense of justice, don't they? Will the good things that I do outweigh the bad things? The truth is, they never can in the end. And, and the greatest question that you can ask is, how can I be justified by God? How is it that God can look at my life and say, 
that is good when it clearly isn't? How can the great judge of all the earth in the highest court look at me and say, not guilty, so that I'm not condemned? How can God treat me as if I'd never sinned? That's a good way of thinking about the word justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. How can God say that about me when he knows, and I know that I have? Christianity is really like a great big swap. Some of you won't be old enough to remember Noel Edmonds and Saturday mornings, the multicolored swap shop. I'm getting some blank looks and some smiles. This was a program on a Saturday morning. I used to love this as a child. And kids would phone in to swap their toys with other kids. I I mean, it wouldn't work now, but it it was kind of bizarre. So if you had some toys that you're a bit tired of, you'd phone Noel Edmonds and say, I've got this kind of Star Trek uh, Enterprise and I want to swap it. What would you like? And then someone else would phone in and they'd arrange for you to like swap these things. The Christian gospel is really like a multicolored swap. What God does is to send Jesus into the world to do two things. The first thing Jesus came to do was to live a life that was good in every way. He doesn't fall short or fail. He is perfect in every way. He lived the life that we don't or won't or can't. When God looks at his life and weighs him, he finds him to be completely and utterly righteous. There isn't a blot or blemish or stain or defect in him at all. And then he was crucified unjustly. The greatest miscarriage of justice that this world has ever seen. The most innocent man who ever lived, sentenced to death. It is interesting, isn't it, that in God's court, God weighs humans and finds them guilty. In a, men, in, a, in a human court, men weighed God and declared him guilty and sentenced him to be crucified. If that's not an example of the enmity between God and the human race, I don't know what is. But while men were plotting, actually God was doing something that he had planned long beforehand What God was doing was to offer up his own son to take the punishment that we deserve. He presents Jesus as the one who takes away the penalty of sin. If you look at this chapter, Paul says it here. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, So you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for who? For righteous people who try really hard to be good? Is that what it says? When we were still what? Trying our best? No, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He says it again in verse 8. This was the very first verse that I learned in Sunday school as a child. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus laid down his life 
to take the judgment of God on himself. So now a great swap can take place. A multicolored swap. You don't have to phone all Edmonds. Christ takes all of our sin on his shoulders and dies to take the consequences of sin. But it doesn't stop there because then what Christ does is he gives to us his righteousness. The life that he's lived is credited to us. It is like we take our dirty rags off and put his righteousness on. We can't earn it or pay for it. We certainly don't deserve it. But God gives us a new status. Another way to look at this is to think about your bank statement. So when you get a bank statement, you have a debit column and a credit column. Imagine your bank statement came and you were overdrawn, massively overdrawn, like a million pounds. So in the debit column, it's like minus one million. And you go, oh no. And then Jesus comes. And he wipes off the whole debt. Well, that would be good, but then you'd be at zero, wouldn't you? Jesus does far more than that. He doesn't just wipe off the debt. He puts a million pound in there as well. So actually, your status has radically changed from being in debt to being in credit. God is not just forgiving our sins. That would be great. He is clothing us in the righteousness of another And what that means is that your standing with God and my standing with God does not depend in the end on our performance. The reason that we think often, am I in, am I out? We're doing the hokey-cokey. It's the Christian hokey-cokey. You put your left foot in. You put, I admit, today I feel like a Christian. Maybe tomorrow I won't. But this is objective. This isn't subjective. This is, all depends on Jesus and his performance it isn't the Christian hokey-cokey. It isn't unstable or flaky, but secure. When you believe in Jesus, you are justified, made righteous in Christ. And because of that, you have peace with God. You're not at war with God anymore. He is your father, friend, and God. You have nothing to fear from him. Because Jesus died to take away our sin and clothes us in his righteousness. Can I say this? If you believe in Jesus, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And he loves Jesus a lot. He can't love you more than that. It doesn't depend on what you do or don't do. He loves you in Christ. If someone says to you, you are not a good person, often, actually, more often, we're saying that to ourselves inside, I am not a good person. You can say, when that thought comes, it doesn't matter. I know I'm a sinner, but it's okay, because the Bible tells me that Jesus came to die for sinners and to swap my sin for his righteousness to make me his own child. I have access because of Jesus. I have peace because of Jesus. Look at what Paul says. We have been justified through what? Verse 1. 
We've been justified through faith. What must you do to gain access? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What you need to do is run to him, to trust his supreme, dying love for you personally. And when you trust in Jesus, then you'll have peace with God and be able to stand in this new place of grace. Oh man, we need to just uh, be quicker. And I'll st- we've got th- number three. Uh, I said three things. What, what have we had so far? Requires an introduction, needs a true peace. Uh, thirdly and finally, standing brings joyful hope. Um, what I mean by that is that this standing is completely permanent. And I say that for two reasons. Uh, number one, the, the, the English isn't so easy. Greek, the original Greek has different verbs. And the, the idea when it says gained access, it, it's the idea of something that happened once in the past, but it's still true now. Does that make sense? So really what the English should say is through whom we gained access and still have access now. Does that make sense? It's hard to say that in English. Um, We we don't really have a verb that that does that. It's something that happened in the past. Your status changed and it's still true now. So in other words, there's nothing temporary about it. Your whole position has changed. Your status changed is completely new. It happened once, it's still true now. But the second thing Paul says is that he he assumes and connects the fact that if you have gained access into this new standing, that the corresponding truth is that you will one day make it to glory. And he says that at the end of verse 2. We've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, if God has brought you into this standing, you'll never lose it. You will make it to heaven in the end. Paul actually says, this is a thought that makes us very excited and glad. Now, I'm a new person, but God hasn't finished yet. Because I've been brought into this new standing now, I will make it to the end. I will get home. I'll make it to glory one day. Paul says the same thing later on in Romans in chapter 8. And it's almost like 6 and 7 are like dealing with objections. What happens when I sin? Why is life so hard and such a struggle? He seems to deal with the objections. And then when you get to chapter 8, he resumes the theme of security chapter 8 verse 1 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ in verse 18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us but the real action is in verse 29 and there's like this chain of unbroken things for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined he also called, those he called he also justified, those he justified he also glorified. 
Can you see the chain? It stretches into the past. It stretches into the future. This standing is permanent. No wonder he says in verse 31, what then should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can? No one can. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him gracefully give us all things? These are massive words, aren't they? He'll bring any charge against those God has chosen. It's God who justifies. Who's going to contradict him? And the whole chapter ends with a crescendo, doesn't it, of just exulting in God's love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This standing requires an introduction. It leads to true peace with God. And it is utterly secure and permanent. I am still a sinner and sometimes life is really hard. But this is a new life. I have a new identity, a new status. Are you a nervous Christian? Are you doing the Christian hokey-cokey? Lift up your head and stand in the grace that God has given to you and that Jesus has bought for you and introduced you into. I don't just want to give you information here. I want to encourage you to do something with this, to live it. Remember this, when you feel like you're on the outside, remember that God brings you inside. Whatever other people say, if God is for you, you're secure. You don't have to fight for recognition or approval. You already have it in spades, bucket loads. There's a wonderful picture in the Old Testament in the prophet Jeremiah. I think these verses should appear on the screen where Jeremiah says this, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. What an image that is. An oak tree standing, sucking in all the nutrition, bearing fruit. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord and whose confidence is in him. Let me close by reading uh, Romans one last time, but this time from a different version of the Bible. You might be familiar with the Message Bible. It's a paraphrase, really. And this is what it says. By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, to set us right with him, to make us fit for him, we have it all together with God because of our Master Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his doors to us. We find ourselves standing where we have always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. May that be true for every one of you.
as we trust in Jesus. Amen.